So good to see you as um, I'm echoing uh, Robbie's words here today, whether you're a guest or whether you're a regular. Something special about Easter Sunday, to be able to come together as a community, to remember why it is we come together really every Sunday and other times of the week uh, to celebrate life and to do life together. This morning, we're going to talk about two kinds of hope. Hope. There is hoping for something, and then there is hoping in someone. There's a kind of hope in life where you're hoping for something, and the kind of hope where you put your hope in someone. Now, when you're hoping for something, what happens is you're hoping for a particular outcome. You're hoping for a particular circumstance to turn out the way you want to. For example, I hope that I get that job. I hope I get that house. I hope I get that girl. I hope I get that girl and she gets that job and we get that house. Right? (laughs) Sometimes we hope for something even though we know it's a long shot with a remote possibility of happening. Kind of think about football season coming up and the Bucks winning the Super Bowl, and you'll understand, okay? We long for something, but it just doesn't happen. And then sometimes we hope for something, and against all odds, it actually happens. I witnessed it this past fall when millions of us who are Chicago Cub baseball fans watched as the Cubs won after over 100 years of futility. Sometimes... Our hopes come true. And then sometimes the things that we hope for has the potential to break our hearts. I hope he will come back. I hope we don't lose her. I hope it's not cancer. But the truth is, one day it will be. It may not be cancer, but it will be something. This morning, uh, Robin and I are really thrilled to have uh, our daughter Sabrina home with us from Florida State. She brought our grandpuppy to see us this past weekend. And you haven't lived until they send you a picture of your grandpuppy, a pit bull, 40 pounds, laying in your bed, <laughs> sprawled out. What has happened to us? <laughs> uh, if you'd have told me that two or three years ago, I'd have told you you were crazy. But I'm thinking this week about when she was about five or so. And uh, I had just taken a physical exam. I was taking out a life insurance policy on our family, and they had drawn blood, and there was a bandage on my arm. And Sabrina saw it, and I think she was a little concerned, so she said, Daddy, why do you have a Band-Aid on your arm? And I thought, well, this is a chance to tell Sabrina what I've done. I'll draw some affection from her. She'll be kind of concerned for Dad. I know it was foolish, but I tend to be foolish. So I went ahead and I said, honey, you just have to understand, they took some blood out of daddy's arm today because I've taken out what they call a life insurance policy and it's to take care of our family. It's in case daddy dies. And if daddy dies, I have this policy and you and sissy and mommy will get $250,000. Sabrina got real serious and I looked back at her and I was kind of seeing her response and sure enough, a tear kind of welled up in her eye and she looked at me and she said, a piece? <laughs> I was a little disappointed, to be honest with you. <laughs> See, here's the deal. If you're putting your hope in a pile of money that's going to come your way someday, 
or in a scheme that's going to out-scheme death or aging or any of that stuff, it's going to disappoint you. One day, and this is just the truth, so we might as well hear it, every day we have to think about this. Everything that we hope for will eventually disappoint us. Every circumstance, every situation. It's either going to wear out or give out or fall apart or melt down or go away. And when that happens, the question is going to be, what about your deeper hope? What about your fallback hope when all other hopes disappoint? When you've lost something that you were hoping for, and listen, it might have been a really, really, really big thing. Have you met someone that you can put your hope in? This morning, it probably doesn't surprise you that I'm going to tell you about this one man that we celebrate on this day. This one man that we can put our hope in. All of us are going to get a chance today on this Easter Sunday to think about this and respond to it. But instead of starting with the Easter story today, we're going to go back before Easter into the Old Testament to a rather obscure story because I think it's one of the coolest pictures, one of the most awesome pictures of what was eventually going to happen on this special day. It's early on in the history of the Israelites, God's people. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness carrying this thing, the Ark of the Covenant, they finally get to the Promised Land. Unfortunately, they're still struggling. They don't have a king. This is before David. This is before King Solomon. They don't have a king, so they go into battle, and they're fighting one of their fierce enemies, the Philistines. And what they're hoping for is they're hoping for something good called victory. They go into battle with the Philistines and they just get trounced. And afterwards, when they get back to camp, they kind of debrief and they say, what happened? Where in the world was God with us? Why wasn't he there? I mean, we were counting on him. We were hoping that he would help us win. So some guy in the back speaks up and says, hey, I have an idea. Let's go back in battle with the Philistines, except this time we're going to use our secret weapon. We're going to bring the Ark of a Covenant with us. This is a very important part to understand. The Ark of a Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, was a box. It was where they kept things like manna, which was uh, the kind of wafer-type food that God had supplied in the wilderness. And they te- also kept the Ten Commandments in this box. But it was not just a box. It literally symbolized and represented the presence of God. They were thinking it like this. They thought, we have God in a box. Wherever we take the box, we take God. And if we brought God into battle, surely, surely, if God's in the battle with us, he will not let us be captured, and certainly, they're not going to capture God. Now, this is kind of a weird theology I'll give you kind of a modern day example. It's not the best one in the world, so just kind of forgive me ahead of time. But it's from a television show called The Simpsons. I'm sure none of you have ever seen it. It's only been on since like the 60s, I think, or something. I'm not plugging the show, okay? But there is one episode where Homer pledges money to a PBS telethon fund drive. They're raising money, and he's tired of hearing about it. So finally, Homer gives a bunch of money. The only problem is... He kind of pledges the money, but he doesn't have it. And when the PBS people find out that he doesn't have the money, they actually force him 
to go on a trip with a bunch of missionaries to a tropical island. And the people he's serving with in the, in the missionary work build a new church. Now, Homer is not a theologically astute character at all, but he's very proud of their accomplishment of building that church, and he kind of sums it up this way. He looks at it, and he says, well, I don't know much about God, but we sure have built him a nice little cage. I don't know about God, but we sure have built him a nice little cage. I want to tell you, I think it's an amazing observation by a guy named Homer, because that is what we do. We love to control God. We love to put him in a cage. But here's the truth about God on this Easter Sunday is you cannot put him in a cage. You cannot tame him or domesticate him. You can't force him to give you the thing that you are hoping for. That's what the Israelites do. They go into battle a second time, and friends, it is an absolute disaster. They lose on that day seven times the number of soldiers that they lost in the first battle. And worst of all, horror of horrors, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The unthinkable has happened. It is like they have lost the presence of God that made them distinct as a people. And the only, only way that it can be described is a day of promise has gone very, very bad. And the Israelites experience what many of us in this room experience at some point in our lives. We experience that hope-shattering crisis. The first day looks pretty bleak. The Israelites lose everything that they're hoping for, and even worse, they lose what represents God. On the Philistine side of the equation, they carry the Ark of the Covenant off to a city called Ashdod. It's where the temple of their God, their false God, is located called Dagon. Dagon uh, is kind of representative of their false god. And in that um, location, that temple, they have a statue, a huge statue dedicated to Dagon. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and they place it next to the statue of Dagon. And all the Philistines cheer because they think that Dagon has prevailed over Yahweh, over God. They have this huge feast and they have chants and they tell their battle stories and it is a very dark day back in Israel. It looks like the God of Israel is defeated and the glory is gone. In fact, there's a very poignant scene in the midst of all this. After they lose the battle, after the ark is captured, they go back and the priest of Israel, Eli, actually dies. His two sons also die and his daughter-in-law dies while giving birth. And when she is giving birth, she hears that Israel has lost the battle and that all these people have died. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. So she names her son in her dying breath. She names him Ichabod. Now, this is a very significant word, so don't miss this. The word kabod is kind of the main word in this story, means glory. The glory of God. But when you put an I in front of the word, it makes it negative in the same way that when we say that someone is a theist, the opposite of that is putting an A in front of it and it would be an atheist. It kind of changes the meaning. So when you put an I in front of Kabod, it makes it Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. 
Now, what she is saying in this statement is that this whole thing is a pipe dream. Abraham was wrong. Moses was just wandering around in the wilderness. There is no God. There is no Yahweh. There is no glory, no hope. Life doesn't mean anything. You're born, you live, you die. That's it. And as soon as my boy Ichabod figures this out, the better. That's the first day, day number one. And everybody in this room today, on April 16th, knows exactly what I'm talking about. What happens when you have a really bad day, but instead of ending, that really bad day keeps on going? It could come from a call from your doctor. It could come from a Dear John letter left on your kitchen counter or found in your email. It might happen because someone misses a stop sign or has a moment of distraction. It could come via a pink slip at work on Monday or a black sheep in your family or blue police lights in your rearview mirror. And you may have thought that you planned for every possibility, that you calculated every conclusion, that you had foreseen every outcome, and yet defeat comes. And then you have to figure out, what do I do next? Where is hope? Holy Saturday? Silent Saturday? Where is God? If you're facing one of those moments in your life, or just in case there's one just around the corner for you, there's part of this story that still needs to be told. At the end of day one, everyone goes home, and it's a nightmare. There is no one present to see or to hear what's going on. Though something has happened in the temple, something's happened in the tent of the Philistines. At dawn of the second day, the priests come in the tent, and the text says this, When the people of Ashdod came in early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face and the ground before the, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. I would have loved to have been there to see that scene. I mean, the texts don't tell us what the priests thought. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was just a coincidence. But it looks suspiciously like Dagon has fallen down to worship the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. It looks like the God of Israel is the Lord of Lords. Dagon's priests realize that it doesn't look good to have their God laying down before the God of Israel. So they dust him off and they put him back up. I like to think that their first thought when they walked in the tent and saw the statue of their God laying before the Ark of the Covenant was Dagon. <laughs> Sorry. But, but here's what I, I really want you to know about the second day. The second day is a hidden combat. It's shrouded in mystery. It's, it's a day of ambiguity, and it's a day of anxiety. Some days are like that. There are days where God is silent, and you're left to wonder or to sometimes wander. Where should we go? Will God show up? 
Will it get better? Is hope lost forever? Sometimes the issue can sound a little abstract, and so I'm going to try and bring it down to where we live. Uh, preaching on, on the Saturday of Holy Week is not the easiest. Because on Friday, we have some sense in which the sacrifice had some purpose, that God can make some good of it. On the Sunday, we know that, that uh, the resurrection comes. But on Saturday, well, several years ago, I received one of those phone calls that we all dread, the type of call that kind of transforms our lives. It was an old friend of mine from seminary. He was serving as a, US, as a chaplain for the U.S. Army. He and his wife had two beautiful daughters, Lauren and Lindsay. Uh, the whole family had been playing outside. It was a weekend. And they'd come in, and the older daughter, uh, Lauren, had gone to take a shower. And while in the shower, uh, she had a seizure. And she fainted. And her hair clogged the drain, and she drowned. Her family were just a few yards away. They were all in the house together. Everett in April, they find her, and they try to resuscitate her, but it was too late. Her parents would have given anything to change that one moment. But they can't. That was their day one. But then came day two, when they would have more questions than they could ever possibly answer in a lifetime. This is the day in which we have to live. The memory of how old their daughter would be would haunt them on every birthday, every Christmas, when she would have graduated from high school. That mom and dad, April and Everett, would live with the emptiness. They'd live with the guilt. They'd live with the blame and the aloneness of day two. This is our world. If our faith is going to mean anything, we have to talk about this. Some of you have known pain of the second day, and it doesn't help when people, especially Christians, try to put God in a cage and explain the mystery and the silence of our suffering. Sometimes Christians respond with bad answers. Sometimes we can be glib. We speak with these empty platitudes like God is in control, as if somehow that's supposed to help. Sometimes we tell people that we have brought suffering on themselves by sinning. Sometimes we tell people that they uh, have not been delivered because they just don't have enough faith. Have more faith, you'll be healed. Sometimes preachers have added to this enormous pain and the suffering uh, from natural disasters caused by pronouncing that disaster as the result of God's judgment due to some sin that they, that is the, the preachers, happen not to like. Instead, maybe, maybe we should just be honest and say, we don't completely understand. We don't know why we live with such problems and heartaches and moments of, of what seems like God has forsaken us when God should have come through for us. It could be, sometimes we say, that God made human beings with free will, and free will inevitably includes the capacity to do evil things. 
and to bring suffering to others and to introduce this fallenness into our world. It could be that God looks at the earth from an eternal or divine perspective, that God understands that one day suffering is going to be redeemed. God sees this in a way that I can't. And that has to be, make some kind of difference in the perspective that God has. It could mean this, though, that the message of Easter is that God has chosen to take the full weight of human suffering and cosmic evil and even might call what we might call God-forsakenness onto the divine self. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We could have received that Son. We could have accepted His love. But we didn't. We rejected it. And we killed Him. But even that wasn't the final answer for God. God wasn't willing to accept our no to Jesus. So he resurrected him. It could be that Jesus introduces us to a suffering God. Something the world could have never thought of before. I don't know the full answer. But I know one thing. I'm struck by this. I'm struck by the consequences of what I consider when I consider the alternative thought that God is completely gone, that there is no end to the story. I'm struck not only by what might be called the strange silence of God, I'm also struck by what might be called the silence of no God. That is not a strange silence. That silence is not a puzzle. It's not a riddle. That silence is a silence which says, that's all there is. Just silence. No answer. No meaning. Nothing. All day long, on the second day, the Philistines came into the temple to celebrate their victory over the sacrifices and sing songs to the great Dagon. And then it's night. The priests turn off the lights. They go home. They leave Dagon alone with Yahweh. And the silence is deafening. Not only in the temple of Dagon, but also in the camp of the Israelites as well. When the sun rises on that third day, the people of Israel are prepared to begin life on their own. Another day. A day without God's presence. A day without hope. But many miles away in the Philistine camp, unbeknownst to them, something is happening. Just as they always do, the priests head to the temple of Dagon to begin their day. But much to their surprise, they find once more that Dagon has fallen on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time, this time, his head and his hands have been cut off and laid neatly across the threshold of the temple. All that is left of Dagon is a stump. Suddenly, they can't blame it on an accident. Suddenly, they can't just say, oh, it's coincidence. Wouldn't you love to have known what happened? <laughs> the text doesn't tell us exactly, but what it does say is this is a three-day story. 
On the third day, the story takes a 180-degree turn. On the third day, the idol is overturned. On the third day, the day of captivity is over. On the third day, God is going to come home to his people. And here's why. Because the third day belongs to God. This is kind of a pattern in the Old Testament. Often the people of Israel are told that they're going to have to wait. They'll be disappointed, but deliverance is coming. Rescue is coming. But usually, for some strange reason, the waiting period seems to be three days. When a hero named Joseph is in prison, he said to Pharaoh's cupbearer, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your job. When Israel was trapped in slavery, Moses asked Pharaoh, let us go three days into the wilderness. When the Israelites arrived at Sinai, God says to them, consecrate the people and make them ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down. And so on the morning of the third day, it came to pass. When Israel was threatened with genocide, a little harem girl, Esther, says that she's going to fast three days. And then she will go into the king and risk her life and ask for deliverance. When this guy named Jonah swallowed and in the belly of a big fish, anybody want to guess how many days he's there? Three days before he's released. When Israel was afraid to go into the promised land, God said to Israel, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan and possess the land that I have given you. The third day was used so frequently that it became kind of a technical expression, meaning a time to wait for deliverance. You know, right now, things are messed up. Right now, your hopes are crushed. Right now, your heart is disappointed. Right now, God seems silent like he's a million miles away. But just hold on. Maybe the best way it is summarizes in the book of Hosea. The prophet says this. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. After two days, he will revive us. But on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And then one day, deliverance came in a way that nobody was looking for. God came to his people, not in a box, but in a man. John puts it this way. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that word dwelt is a very important word here. Literally, it kind of means tabernacle or tent. He tabernacled, he set up tent, he pitched a tent among us. Now remember, the tabernacle was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. This is the place that they thought, this is where God is. Now listen to what John says. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here it is. We beheld his glory, his kabod, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. But man, was it a different kind of glory. Jesus was this strange combination of humility and uh, selflessness and fearlessness. Let me tell you something. Nobody could tame Jesus. Nobody could domesticate Jesus. Not politicians, not Pharisees, not zealots, not religious leaders, no one. No one could ever manipulate Jesus into giving them what they had hoped for. So in the end, those in power took him and they lashed him with a whip. And you know the story. They pierced him with a sword and they hung him on a cross. And it was the first day, a dark day. 
his followers were crushed. Guys like Peter, so afraid that he denied knowing Jesus. How many times? There it is again. Peter had seen the glory for a while. Now it was gone. And now it was lying in a tomb. Now it was Ichabod. And the second day didn't look any better. On the second day, Pontius Pilate posted a guard to stand watch over the tomb because now Pontius Pilate was in control. He wanted to make sure that nothing happened. He wanted to make sure that no one came and kind of did any funny business with the body. On the second day, Pilate posted a guard and he said to himself, well, I guess that's the end of that. I guess we don't have to worry about that movement anymore. You know, I don't know much about this Jesus, but we sure have built him a nice little cage. The first day was dark. The day he died. The second day, the guard was posted. And everyone, everyone thought it was done. We thought that the thing that we were hoping for was never going to come true. But what they were about to discover as they cried out to God in despair and grief was that hope was one day away. Because the third day belongs to God, friends. The third day is the day when prisoners of Pharaoh get set free. The third day is the day that the mountains shake and the rivers are parted and people walk into the promised land. The third day is the day when little harem girls like Esther walk into a king and face him down. The third day is the day that prophets like Jonah get dropped off at seaside ports. The third day is the day disciples like Peter come running to the tomb with hope in their heart. The third day is the day that idols like Dagon come tumbling down and God starts coming back to his people. I want to tell you this morning, the third day is the day that stones are rolled away. The third day is when hope comes back to your life. You never know what God is going to do, friends. Because the third day really 